Hello, Damon. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm well. I woke up and guess what was outside? The sun? Quite snow. Quite the opposite. Yes, snow. It was a winter wonderland. It was early enough that though the sun came later, it was not there yet. I had Orion. I had the Big Dipper. I had a little slice of Venus and (laughs) I had snow and frost. Our shortest wow. season here in Montana, fall, it's done. Stick a fork in it. We are on to sleigh rides. Wow. So I wanted to talk to you today about moving from breakdown to breakthrough. Hmm. And hey, maybe we won't even get to the breakthrough part. <laughs> <laughs> Let's focus on the struggle. Breakdown. I wanted to... Start in one of your worlds of elite tennis. Okay. And expand out from there to some of your client stories to the larger science. And when I say start in elite tennis, I don't mean Roger Federer, I mean you. Mm. I know you have a really interesting story that I've only heard a minute or two from you of. And I made a note, I wanted to circle back. And now, episode whatever 23 i got you where i want you if Mm. if i may could i ask a few questions and then open it up to you absolutely so what's the deal you were really good at tennis when you were a kid (laughs) (laughs) i was i was i started fairly late in the grand scheme of things i mean when i say fairly late i mean nine or ten but i was just an athlete from a very young age, my dad was a PE teacher. I played soccer and baseball and a lot of different racket sports. My dad was a national handball champion. So I was in the court with him all the time, smacking the little blue hard handball around. So I took a parks and rec class at nine in tennis. And yeah, by the time I was 11, I was playing in national tournaments. And this means you were traveling, you were had things like rankings. Did you mm. have a wristband and a headband? <laughs> That's what I associate <laughs> with the real the the professionals from the amateurs. Was there money involved? Like how does that whole world work? Well, did you have, did you have a coach yourself, etc.? I definitely had a coach. Uh, it wasn't my own private coach, but I definitely was working with the elite I think the group was called Excellence at the time. And so at 11, I was in the Excellence group, which consisted of all the the high-ranking players in our area, all the way up to the 18-year-olds. So we were all in this big, big, big group together. I do remember that I used to get my shoes for free from Foot Joy. Yes. And and that was a pretty amazing thing to get a package in the mail with- At 11. Yeah, I think I was I might have been 12 or 13 by the time I I was pulling in the the free sponsored swag. Yeah. But 
and I was a very I was very coordinated with my attire. So I I was an Adidas kid, and I had the Adidas shorts and socks and shirt and and the whole shebang. But no wristband, no headband. And this was a pipeline, possibly to the pros or at least a college scholarship. Yeah, I think when I was in the 14s division, I was on the local television. They interviewed me. And I think that the headline was something like the big tournament, the intersectional tournament is called the Western Close, which is the the whole Midwest. And I think the headline was from the Western Close to Wimbledon, Damon Valentino starts his quest. So at at 14, I, you know, was I was noted in the area as a a high ranking national tennis player and it really did form a lot of my identity certainly at that time who were your peers in the larger national scene who were the other tennis players around that age that even at that point perhaps you have your eye on in a magazine or i guess there's not a website at that point but is there a a larger community that who the people you're aiming for or hoping to play against or even beat are at that point future professionals? I'll answer that by saying, I'll give you those names in a second, but at that age, American tennis was was at the apex. We had Connors and McEnroe. We had just the the biggest names were were at the top of the sport. So watching McEnroe play Borg, for example, in Wimbledon was just that was like riveting TV for me. So I had the the role models and the heroes and the posters on the wall of those guys. But my age, who knew at the time, right? but the guys that I was playing and competing against on a fairly regular basis was Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Pete Sampras. And then the kid that was in my hometown who went on to be a top 10 in the world player was named Todd Martin. And at the time I was destroying Todd Martin, just, you know, beating him handily. But yeah, the guys that were Malavai Washington was another Michigan kid who made it to the finals of Wimbledon later on. So our sport and my age group was loaded with what became some of the best players to ever play the game. I have so many questions. I'm going to try to stay focused to stay to our topic, <laughs> but we're going to go back to this again and again now that we've opened this box, if I may. Uh-huh. What happens? Where does the elevator stop? And what's the process along the way? So I think a couple of things that, that really jump out at me. I, I do believe that it was articulated to me primarily by my dad, who was not a tennis player that the ultimate goal was to get a college scholarship. And so that was always just embedded in my mind. It also was true at the time that we we didn't have a lot of money. So even though I was traveling around to all of these tournaments, I was doing so by myself in a sport that was known for people having money. So a lot of my competitors had entourages. And they had eight tennis rackets and staying at the Ritz-Carlton and all this. And so there was just this sense that, that I didn't have all of the 
material tools to believe that I belonged at the very, very top. I was, I was top 40, 50 in, in the United States. And the difference is, was slight. I mean, I would split sets with some of those guys that I just named. A couple of those guys from Michigan, I actually have beaten. The Malavai Washington goes on to Wimbledon, you know, finals fame and another top 10 player in the world. At 14, 15 years old, we were close and I was winning some of those matches. So I think that there's this ceiling in terms of expectation what what one feels is possible and and a couple of other things that started to influence what i felt was possible one was yeah, i'm not a very big person i'm a pretty small and so i i my bread and butter was outlasting people and being so consistent and mentally tough that nobody could break me down and i would wear people out and around 15, 16, not only were you know some of the guys that were somewhat my size growing, but the game changed technologically as well. So we went from, when I first started, I literally had a wood racket and to the, the basic rackets. And then they just got a little bit more advanced with more power and people got bigger. So the game sort of changed right in front of me. And I didn't make the pivot and and also i just still tried to play into my strengths and so it, there was this period in in 15 16 where i had to make a decision a very uncomfortable decision to start to change the way i went about my business out there and and like i said i think there was also some insecurity around just socioeconomic insecurity and and then just some of the run on the run of the mill bullying that that goes on at at a high level into individual sport like that, that, that I ran to, into as well. You told me once, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't know if this is at the college level or at this end of high school level, that there was a block that happened that was internal and manifested it externally on the court. Do you know what I'm talking about? And can you share what happened and when? Yes, I, I intimately know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I did make that pivot 16, 17, and I did move back up into the ranks and felt that I had a lot of options in terms of college, you know, recruited by you know larger schools, schools that had good tennis reputations, etc. And my senior year so just to put this into some context my freshman sophomore junior year of high school and when i played high school tennis was still a thing it's less of a thing now for high level players but when i played everyone played and i my record was something along the lines of 70 wins and three losses for three years yeah wow so going into my senior year, this is it. This is the year. This is the big season. And the recruiting is hot and heavy. And the first day of practice, I fed a ball to one of my teammates and he hit it back to my forehand and I hit a normal forehand. Forehand was very good. Then he hit one to my backhand. And I, 
I hit a ball with my backhand that had a lot of topspin on it, and it landed on the ground on my side of the net before it even hit the net. And Hmm. this wave, I can feel it as I explain this, this wave of sheer terror Hmm. went through my body. And I tried to shake it off and we started another rally and I hit it again. And there, lo and behold, another one, bottom of the net. Every time the ball came to my backhand and every time I was about ready to swing, just without realizing what was going on, my muscles would tense up and I couldn't swing the racket. And this is backhand and forehand now, or this is this is this particular one stroke, one situation, but obviously one that comes up roughly half the time. Just my backhand. Yeah, and I had a two-handed backhand and it never it, it didn't go away the entire season. My 70 and three record for three years, my senior year, I went eleven and ten. And everyone knew exactly what to do. And the embarrassment and shame was, it was just overwhelming. Yeah, I can just hear it. Obviously, we've done a lot of processing, and I think it's healthy to be able to access it. But writers were so neurotic. We have so many <laughs> blocks and breaks that I was being earnest. And I was like, maybe you don't even remember. You're like, ah, <laughs> uh, no, I remember. Mm-hmm. So what happened? What was the story you told yourself? What was the process you went through? And what was the material outcome? Was that in peril, that that college goal or or what? So uh, a lot of the higher level schools that I was hoping to go to noticed, obviously, and dropped off. So I chose to attend Michigan State. I did still, because I I was from around there, they knew me very well. And I think they wrote it off as just like some aberration. So I I did get the college scholarship. And that summer, it was the last thing on my mind would have been to reach out for help from somebody like me. That just wasn't how you did it back then. And by somebody like me, you mean a performance coach. That's right. Yeah. And especially if you're feeling like you can't even afford the second tennis racket that some of these kids have, assume uh, a psychological help is just not even, again, in the consideration. Not even something you're aware to not (laughs) want, to to not think you can have. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. And, And frankly, it wasn't even anything I talked about with anyone. Even my teammates, coaches, it just was this demon that would creep up and, and vice versa that means they're not talking about it with you they're not it's talking like, it's like it's like they they feel like they give a baseball team and they're not talking to the pitcher that they think might be shaky or or not they don't want to acknowledge the jinx pretty much yeah it was the elephant in the room though and so that summer i just dedicated myself the only thing i knew how to do was work and grind so i just worked and i was i I got myself in, you know, the best shape I'd ever been in my life. I, I worked so hard that 
I found some way to manage and make at least make neutral shots and I was at least consistent. I wasn't hitting them into the bottom of the net any longer. And I of course had a lot to prove when I went into college. And ironically, I I put so much work in that the very first fall semester of my freshman year was the most successful of my entire four-year career. Mm. So I found a way to outwork it to some degree. But it but that that demon, that feeling never went away. And it's like you're masking something rather than transcending it is the vibe at least I'm getting. It's it's not the same trajectory you were on before, but you're able to cover up the limp or whatever you want to call it. So I think this happened when I was 17 or 18 years old. I'm 51 years old, clearly not competing at that level any longer. I still cannot hit a two-handed backhand. I, I literally changed when I got out of college to a one-handed backhand. It's almost like after an injury, but the injury is mental, it seems, if I may say it so baldly. Is that true in your understanding? It is. What's fascinating to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the story I tell myself is that this impediment, this injury, this block, this breakdown that almost stopped you from getting into college and certainly took you off the path that you were on, in a way got you into graduate school (laughs) (laughs) and uh, master's. You know, have your field, your profession, I think in part from this experience. Is, is that right? And if so, or if not, can you elaborate or explain the path? It, it is right. I have a master's degree in sports psychology. And my path, though, I feel like I have a PhD in the kinesiology, particularly as it pertains to moving one's body on a tennis court because I spent the decade out of high school, or excuse me, out of college, running a tennis club and teaching other people how to you know, construct and manufacture their form and their swing and et, et cetera. So I spent a lot of time analyzing the human movements of how to produce tennis shots. And I also had a tremendous amount of empathy for the people who would step on my court and may not feel like a lot. I was the head pro, and this was on Nantucket Island in Massachusetts. And most of my clients were very successful in their their respective fields and Wall Street finance and it's some larger names and in actors and that's a whole bunch of that stuff and they would step out onto the court and there was obviously sometimes people sitting and watching and i could just feel their just the terror the ball coming to them and the just this this sense of just don't screw it up don't hit it over the fence don't hit it into the ground and it informed how i began to instruct others and through that instruction, I literally, even though I say I can't hit a two-handed backhand now, I 
I found a way out of the seeing that as a dark and destructive thing. And I think that might be what you're alluding to, that it started to help me build new new pathways inside of myself as I was watching and instructing others and moving around the court myself, albeit with a one-handed backhand, which ended up getting really good, ironically. And that decade was the raw material that helped me when I went into the graduate program and went you know, through a three-year program and really understood and studied the science underneath a lot of this. Well, what is the science or what is your understanding? How do you make sense of what happened and how do you find peace or understanding, if not peace, uh, about it? There's a condition now that usually you'll see it in golf or baseball, and it's called the yips. And it's when, let's say, a catcher receives a pitch from a pitcher and normal, he's done this a million times, he just throws it back to the pitcher and he can't. He bounces it. Or a second baseman gets a normal ground ball and he tries to throw it over to first base, the easiest throw in the infield, and he sails it high or bounces it in the ground. It's this normal function that the body has produced and done or a, a, put, a putter in golf, or they're hitting a, a pitch shot into the into the, the green and just hacks into the, the ground. So these normal shots that have been produced millions of times from professional players, they literally just have a spasm, essentially. And... I guess a, a way to, to think about it would be, let's say you were, let's say I asked you to stand up and just walk across the room. And while walking across the room, I asked you to have your brain instruct your body how to take every single move of that walk. So pick up the foot, start to out, push it forward, yeah, move your foot into space, let your knee extend, put your heel down on the, and then pick your other foot up and have those other toes touching. And I've, then, already, I've already broken my nose in the visualization because I've tripped <laughs> and fallen so hard. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, that's the closest definition that I can see for what happened. The brain felt like it needed to instruct a movement that was already a very natural movement and it short-circuited the ability for the body just to release and, and let it happen. And what is your take on it at this point for yourself? Is it something you accept? Is it something you're upset about? Is it something you're grateful for? Is it all of the above? What is the transformation understanding that you've had from going through that and still experiencing it in some way, still embodying it? I think as a professional, I feel grateful because it's given me, as I said, a lot of empathy. And I think sometimes successful players don't make very good coaches 
because they say, just do it the way I do it. And that's just not possible for, for people. So having reached the depths of that type of terror has informed me of how uh, overwhelming that can be. On a, a personal level, I, I still am not necessarily at peace with that. It, it really took a lot of the joy out of hmm. play. I was no longer playing a game. I was avoiding a demon or being overwhelmed by a demon. And that's, that's feeling stuck around my entire college career. Even when, it, even when it wasn't manifesting externally, it was in there. So I would say that that's the, the both sides of the coin of that. But I also think that on another level, it, it forced me to seek meditation and it forced me to look outside the box and, and develop new skills and become resilient in new ways that would not, not have happened had this experience not occurred. So on the whole, I think it's a net positive but but it it's a real it's a real still it still feels somewhat traumatic when i recall it and something that makes the demon part apt is there's a haunting quality to something that you can't necessarily point a finger to in the way you can of a car accident or turning a acl or something like that what was the self-talk that you started with and ended with, if you can even track it? Because you weren't having conversations with other people about this, it sounds like, but I'm sure you were talking to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Consciously or unconsciously. So, Oof. yeah. what were you saying or what were you hearing and what do you say and hear now? I think then it was uh, a lot of self-flagellation, a lot of calling myself weak, a lot of just whipping myself, thinking that that was the answer was to snap out of it. Yeah, snap out of it. Grow up. Like, get over it. You you work too hard for this. You're you're letting it slip away. What's wrong with you? You still have the person who hadn't had that experience, <laughs> who is still the inner voice talking to the person having that experience. As you said, the person that isn't going to end up being a good coach because they don't get it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny because there's a burgeoning field in performance psychology and humanistic psychology around post-traumatic growth. So how we come to have a deeper relationship with trauma and then thereby having a deeper sense of meaning and sometimes purpose for how to uh, evolve from that and to not necessarily leave it in the dust, but to bring that trauma and, and reshape it and, and find a way to use and, and have that inform us to have a richer, deeper sense of purpose and meaning in life. And that part I, I absolutely think is true in my case, in this situation where 
as I mentioned, I have a lot of empathy for everyone that has the wherewithal to schedule an appointment with me. And I mean, that takes courage. And, and that's, nobody's usually calling me when they're doing well. They're, right. they're usually calling me because the pain point is just too painful. What is the conversation with yourself you have now? I'm guessing if you're like me, <laughs> that you're still having that same conversation that you had when you were 18, but or 17, you're still having that, but you're having it less, you're having it less loud, you're having it less long. And you have all these other conversations that you can have with yourself too. But maybe you've gone to a different level and you're not even having that old conversation at the same time. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I can, it isn't something I'm conscious of too often, but I just have a lot more self-compassion. You're doing the best that you can. I speak to myself in, with, it, with the using you more than I. Right. And I think that, there's been some research around that, being able to get into your limbic system where that smoke alarm is going off and where we're not so nice to ourselves. And so you are saying things like that. You're, you're doing the best that you can. You are enough. You're, you have a lot of amazing traits. You are using your skills to the best of your ability you're you're helping the world in and through your own expression using those types of sentences when i feel just the residue or and it's not it doesn't really it's not attached to the backhand anymore but it's it's more just the that the gurgling of shame and different elements of trauma or just not being enough or all of that stuff that most of us feel and and some of us some of us are overwhelmed by some of us power through some of us have a beautiful relationship with all of that it's been expressed as the shadow part of of self in, in other other modalities and so i view it now as having a deeper relationship with those elements within is the way out. And my counsel with others is to do what's counterintuitive. What's, what's intuitive is to push it down, to do what I did when I was younger, to outwork it, to outgrind it. And that doesn't, it's like, doing gardening where you're weeding and you're just cutting the, the, the weed off at the level of the earth and you're really not going in there and, and dealing with the root. And in this case, it's almost just planting more and saying, it's okay for this weed to be here, but I'm also going to water these other things. I'm going to acknowledge that this weed exists. And in fact, I'm actually going to find some beauty because it contrasts really well with these roses that I just put in over here. Because at the end of the day, when you have that a more expansive view of all those different emotions and, and feelings inside, the, it's just not possible to truly experience joy and happiness without the counterbalance to some of the frustrations, disappointments, even guilt, fear, shame. So 
I'm seeing it in much more of a holistic way and then opting to spend more time watering those areas that that bring me more pleasure and joy. And that's that informs my practice when I work with people as well. Was it a special focus of study when you got into sports psychology? Is it something you looked into or went to a professor with? Like asking a, about a friend. <laughs> hmm. I did my thesis on fear of failure. <laughs> so, but that was a coincidence. That yeah, was, that was just... Totally, because totally, I'm not afraid. I'm no. afraid of succeeding too much. Yeah. What's funny about that is that you said that as a joke, and that is actually true, that many people sabotage themselves because they're really afraid of succeeding. Well, what they're afraid of is changing. Is they're, my bold, my bold random <laughs> armchair psychology. I said that so confidently. You did. You I did. can't believe it. But I was like, I'll just, I'll just, yeah. So I'll just, with that caveat that, ha, huh, what do I know? You have homeostasis. You have the condition you're used to. And if you blow that up, you can blow it up by failing, but you can also blow it up by changing your situation. So I, I've just seen that with young people and people dealing with addiction and people in toxic relationships, including with themselves, and even injuries where you get used to a situation. I mean, even this pandemic, it's terrifying to imagine the day it's all fine. Like Going into a coffee shop with knowing that it's not there is somehow more intimidating in my head now than just staying on the, the rut and pattern I'm in. So just speaking from those examples, that's my bold, confident, claim. I love it. You're, you're well-informed. And I think homeostasis is a really apt way of thinking about this. We do not like to change. And ironically, we're wired to grow. So, And our brain it doesn't really care about us being happy. Our brain's primary re- function is to keep us alive and have us to procreate. So w- whatever is the safest most our brains would be quite content if we just lived in a bubble with a member of the opposite sex without changing a whole lot at all. And so you're right about that. It's also interesting about this fear of success that people don't want to change. As you said, people also, when we achieve things that, that are quote unquote above our level, there's this terror that two things. There's a terror that we'll have imposter syndrome when we get there. And there's this terror that we're not going to be able to sustain it, that, that now we're going to slide back down, that it was a right. one, that was a one-off. It was lucky. So all of that, you put all of that into the stew, but then you also come full circle back down to the beginnings of life where I would say, let's, as we've all done, we all learned how to walk. And we didn't learn how to walk to up level our lives right we didn't we weren't after some material success it wasn't an external reward we were internally motivated to learn how to walk and we all fell hundreds of times and while falling i'd be willing to bet none of us smashed our hands on the ground at 9 10 months old saying, damn it, I can't do this. I'm never going to get it. <laughs> right? Man up, man up. Right, right. Or I'm done. I'm not going to try this anymore. So where did it go awry? Where, so how, how are both of these things 
both true? How is it true that we cling to homeostasis and that the pains of change are real? And how is it also true that we're wired to grow? And that is just inherent in our in evolutionarily. That's just who we are as a species. How do we make sense with both of those elements? Are you turning that to me? I, want, I thought you, you got the math. I, I, I want the I want the thirty second uh, summary of your three I, years of grad school. I was waiting for a, a bold pivot <laughs> off of homeostasis from you. <laughs> I was just I, I I forgot to think. I was I was in receiving mode. Yeah, I just yeah I paid for the whole seat, but I only need the edge. Aha! I see. Okay. Well, I'll use a maybe more of a common imagery for this. If you pull out your phone and you turn the camera on and you point it outward, you're having a relationship in and around the world. You're part of the world and you're able to interact and react to the surroundings. But if you flip that onto selfie mode, now something very significant changed. You became separate from the world you became walled off from everything else around you. It's the world and then you. And that baby never had, was never on selfie mode. The baby was always turned out. And so when I lost my backhand, I was all the time on selfie mode. And it became, I became the obsession. I was obsessed with me. And that they were seeing me in a certain light. And that now I was becoming even more hypercritical of my actions and inadequacies. And this is true in, in life. So when we flip that camera, that metaphoric camera out, we have an opportunity to play and be in the world and take in more pattern recognition and open our senses to the experience of being alive. And that has a calming effect on our nervous system. It also has an activation on our, what's called our seeking system in our brain. And we're looking out at the world with adventure and exploration. And as it turns out, that also releases dopamine. So now that feels good and we're not analyzing self while moving through space. But as soon as we turn it around and analyze self and try to move through space, it's like the example that I gave trying to articulate walking. Face plant. Face plant, freeze up. And it's just, it's a very destructive, it's not that we don't need to tend to ourselves, but we cannot have that camera facing ourselves as, as much as we do. It makes me think of two things. One, I think I shared in a previous episode, one of my simplest, I think, flip the camera or turn the camera off hack is when I'm going down a big thought train, I just say, take a breath in and out and then hear three distinct sounds from beginning to end. And then you can 
keep on your thought train as much as you want. But that, and one of those three sounds can be your own inhale and exhale effect. I recommend it. It's right there. And they'll come pretty quick, but you're going to have to wait for them. And they are external to you. And they'll come and you'll start to go back and you're like, oh, wait, I have to go all the way to the end of the train whistle. Or I can hear the car going by, but it's not, I have to just hear it go all the way down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or if a toilet has been flushed, okay, I have to hear it to the last gurgle. And again, these are four or five seconds long, but it can just feel like so long. Cause you're just like, I want to go back to <laughs> my fear and shame <laughs> and panic. <laughs> but by the end of that, that tie that, that has tied me so closely, you know, I'm tied onto the train of my own mm. thoughts has really been, been loosened quite a bit. And I often have the freedom to say, eh, I think I'll just go back to work or do something else mm-hmm. uh, with my time. So that's, that's a real quick one. I just wanted to share again, because it's, it's really available and it's outside us. So it doesn't require a special will for us to generate. It's just stop and listen to the refrigerator hum or, mm. uh, car or our own breath. The other is my ultimate hack, productivity, life, happiness hack over the past six months. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for it? Mm-hmm. Hide self view. Mm. Are you familiar with this feature? I certainly am. Yes. If you are in Zoom world all the live long day or any of the day, <laughs> looking at yourself as the default is, is this hell that you describe. Mm-hmm. And because it's just the default, and for obvious reasons, we want to make sure we have our shirt on <laughs> and we don't have lipstick on our teeth or any other issues, perhaps it's easy to just bake it in and not even think about it. But it has that exact feature and your eyes just naturally go back to yourself over and over and over again. And it's hard to even connect or make eye contact or look at other people as hard as it is anyway in these formats. And I have just been killing self-view as early and often as possible. And I can go like two, three, four times as long and I'm just so much happier and more relaxed afterward. And I don't even use Zoom that much you all who are at work doing this much more often, I just cannot recommend it enough to, to beat that Zoom fatigue and that psychological fatigue because it's exactly the situation that you, Damon, described. Mm-hmm. And it's just built into nine to five for so many people these days. But it's a pretty easy right or left click. Turn yourself you off and set yourself free. <laughs> mm, it's uh, really good advice. and. I, I'm on Zoom a lot and I do recommend it quite often. Figure out your background, make sure you, as you say, don't lipstick on your teeth, but then there's like three little dots up there. You click on those and hide self-view because if you think about it, if you're having a conversation with somebody at a cafe, you are not looking at yourself. You're looking at them. And so this has been, as you say, it's a, it's a, psycho, a psychological detriment to have that selfie analytical in your eyes, there's just no choice. You're going to go there. A couple of other things that that I recommend, 
when we feel this isolation and it's, you know, me, 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 camera turned around, as counterintuitive as it, as it feels in the moment, reach out to somebody else. Check in on someone else. If I could go back to my 17-year-old self and give them any piece of advice during the horror of all that, it would have been become obsessed with helping all of your teammates out. Get out of your own yeah. self and turn out and help somebody else out. Now, any of my neighbors listening to this, now they're going to know why they get all these chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jeremy's been feeling a little self-important. Yeah, yeah. self-talk. I heard another really good one from a, a client of mine. I'll give him a, an anonymous shout out. But I spoke with him this morning and he's, he's an intense competitor, very introspective, reminds me a little bit of me in terms of like that mindset back then. And he said, when I'm doing things well nowadays on the court, I'll do my fist pump. But while I'm doing my fist pump, I look up and make eye contact with one of my teammates, at least one. And I'll look around and scan and just and re and remember uh, that I'm part of this group. And and I said, wow, that's interesting. What what led you to do that in the first place? And he said, it kept me from being too absorbed with me and being separate. I felt connected. And then with that connection, I was able to allow my body to, and to trust that my body was going to do what it already knew how to do. And I found that it's made me feel much more grounded and much more consistent. So I thought that was a really wise example of taking a theory and putting it into practice. And that is an important concept as well. We have theories. We need to practice these theories and experiment with them and see which ones actually land and resonate before we decide on too prescripted of, 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 a, of a reaction to different situations that we potentially are anticipating these things happening, which is just another way of clenching slightly and, and not allowing us to just freely move through space and, and trust that we will be able to improvise and, and react in ways that are authentic for ourselves. It reminds me of something I tell my daughter sometimes and myself and others, I say, my strength is my weakness. And by that, I mean two things. One, when I am feeling really strong and I can do things on my own, I'm heading straight toward trouble <laughs> and <laughs> turmoil and isolation and the fall that is going to be really hard to get up from because I'm going to feel it's all my fault. And I also mean when I'm feeling weak, that is going to lead to certain kinds of success because I'm just much more likely to ask for help or support in those situations. And it's not only that I get help, but it just becomes not a me thing. It becomes a we thing. Mm. Or someone else telling me their story, as this whole podcast has been. This is going to be a part one <laughs> because I, I didn't even get to my own breakdown. Mm -hmm. And so, yay, everybody can look forward to that in part two. I could tell you the incident that I'm, I'm thinking of that brought 
this topic to mind for me and maybe want to briefly hear your story and mm. then get to the real one, which was mine. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be a part two. Why not? You probably feel better because you, again, you turned out and you became curious about me. And so whatever intensity of your breakdown for this 45 minutes or, or an hour, maybe it subsided a little bit as well. And I also just want to underscore our suggestions. When you mention the sounds and breathing, when I mentioned my, my client fist pumping, or even another one that I do in my family, which my wife rolls her eyes at, but my daughter loves, is that especially when we're, when we're in a funk, if, if we're all grumpy or we're, we don't really, we're just not in the zone in some which way, I will say, okay, I think it's time. And my wife's like, what, what are you talking about? And, but my daughter starts to clue in and I will belt out the loudest, yeah. <laughs> and then my daughter, Lydia, will go, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll do it four or five times and it works every single time. So what I really want to underscore is that typically the cycle is we have sensations and thoughts and perceptions. And then we ascribe a label on those things. And then behavior comes from that. And everything that you and I are saying has put puts behavior first. We flip the script and doesn't matter how bad you feel, you have chosen the behavior of listening to sounds. You've chosen the behavior to breathe. Breathing is a behavior. It is an action that you are consciously doing. And me saying, yeah, is a behavior. This player throwing a fist pump, even if you are in the most extreme, and here's another example, if I could teleport back to my 17-year-old self, every time I hit one of those horrific shots, I would... I would lift my posture, smile, give a fist pump, and maybe even just like a chest pump, chest bump, and walk around with intention. Treat my, have the behavior completely usurp what the storyline is. Hmm. And that is something that I really want to leave our listeners with. Don't start with thoughts and feelings and then have that affect behavior. No matter what the thoughts and feelings are, choose a behavior. This is a way to reboot. And quite often, you don't go back to those thoughts and feelings. You literally shift state and you move to a new space. And then the everything that's going on looks just slightly different. Quite often, it's a way, especially if this is not some major issue, to pivot off of telling that story, which then snowballs into a predictable, quote unquote, negative behavior. I love that. I'll re- plug hide self view again. Mm-hmm. And a couple of frameworks too, I think can be useful if they have a certain paradoxical power. One, I already shared my strength is my weakness. <laughs> mm. If you're feeling weak, turn to that because oh, you've just found your strength. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the other, I think I've shared this before, a training group I work with often before we go into what are often really fraught and, and tricky sessions, 
the group cheer right before is I love making mistakes. <laughs> mm. And so your, your worst case scenario is, is now success rather than flubbing it. So sometimes if, if you are a, a heady person and you can't quite deal with saying yay necessarily, you can have these rationales that I, I think are, are true and supportive in their own way too. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and I'll plug a book from Ryan Holiday who dives deep into stoicism and it's called The Obstacle is the Way. And when we start to realize that the the obstacles that come into our lives is when we see those as clues as opposed to impediments, it changes everything. We're curious, we're explore more about it. We look at we look with more insight and we behave as opposed to describing how big this terrible wall is that's in front of us. My mom sent me a handkerchief that is imprinted. What is in the way is the way. <laughs> I keep that in my wallet. So I don't know if a handkerchief person stole it from Ryan or Ryan stole it from the handkerchief person or great minds think alike. Yeah, I think they both stole them from Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> Have a great day, everyone. Have a great way, everyone. If you're fine, have fun with that. If you're breaking down, we're waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> right at the end of the block, we're there. We followed that route too, as perhaps I'll get into more next time or a future time. Thank you so much, Damon. Thank you all for listening. And we will talk more soon. Yeah. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy M. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins of Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive.